Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me your name. Catherine Ashley Hoggle. Thank you. How old are you? 36. What's your birthday? 11-13-86. Standing before Judge James Bonifant is Catherine Hoggle. It's November 2022, and she's here in a Montgomery County, Maryland courtroom because Judge Bonifant has to decide if the 36-year-old mother of three might finally be fit enough to stand trial for the murder of two of her children. Do you know what evidence is? Yes, sir. And I don't want you to tell me anything about the circumstances in this case, but generally, what is evidence? Something that makes things, something that's used for a case, good or bad. Today, Catherine calls the Clifton T. Perkins Hospital Center in Jessup, Maryland, a psychiatric hospital, home. She's been there, locked up, for nearly a decade. Charged with the first-degree murders of two-year-old Jacob and three-year-old Sarah, but yet to stand trial. Because for the past eight years, Catherine has been deemed incompetent. Do you know what attorneys do? Yes, Your Honor. Tell me what attorneys do. They prosecute or defend. What should an attorney know? What happened at the alleged crime. Being incompetent to stand trial is not the same as being found insane or not criminally responsible. Competency deals with Catherine's state of mind since her arrest. In order for Catherine to receive a fair trial, she has to understand the proceedings, the role of the judge and jury, and her lawyer and the prosecutor, the whole process. Is there anything else that they should know? Um, I can't think of anything right now. I'm not very good at public speaking. As Catherine sits in that Maryland courtroom, she does know where she is. She understands what's happening to her and why. 
But for the last eight years, psychiatrists have regularly determined that she's not well enough to assist her lawyer in her own defense, and that this is what makes her incompetent. Have you ever heard of the phrase attorney-client privilege? Yes, sir. What do you think that means? It's private conversation with you and your attorney. Okay. Thank you very much, ma'am. She left with Jacob to go get pizza right up the street and came back three and a half hours without him. September 7th, 2014 would be the last day Troy Turner would ever see his kids again. Because not only did Catherine fail to bring two-year-old Jacob back home after a supposed pizza run, she also took her three-year-old daughter Sarah sometime that night or early morning. She never came home with her either. To this day, their bodies have not been found. It's not clear where Catherine took the kids or why, and she continues to insist that her children have not come to any harm. They were great kids. They both had very sweet souls. Uh, I used to call Sarah my tomboy princess. She loved to play fight with, with me and the boys. She would come to defend her brothers because I would be, you know, slamming them around and stuff, and she would punch me in the stomach, and I would be like, okay, playtime's over. <laughs> uh, she was just a sweetheart, and, you know, she she didn't take any stuff from her brothers. And then Jacob was just super sweet. He he always smiled. He was just always happy. And he would hate for any of his older siblings to be in trouble. I found out about this story when I received a Facebook message on January 23rd, 2022. It was from a family member close to Sarah and Jacob's father, Troy, pleading with me to help them. My name is Sarah Trelevin. I'm a journalist, and I had recently appeared on an episode of the news program 2020 about another podcast I made. This one about a woman recently convicted of murdering her two children, Lori Vallow Daybell. When the show aired, I heard from a number of people who were desperate in some way. They wanted help solving cases of their missing children, parents, partners. They all wanted the media to pay attention to something that had gone terribly wrong in their lives. This one was different. This message said that if Catherine was not brought to competence, then the charges against her would be dropped. In Maryland, if someone charged with murder is unable to stand trial because they are deemed incompetent, the state only has five years to try and get them healthy enough to go before a judge and face the charges. And if that doesn't happen, if they go five years without being declared competent, then those murder charges are dismissed they all but disappear. Catherine could be released from Perkins. Troy might never find out what happened to his kids. And when I got that Facebook message, the clock was running out. This is the story of two kids whose definitive fates are unknown and a mother who has been found not competent to stand trial for their murders. But it's also the story of unintended consequences, about a legal system that was set up to protect people, but actually raises questions about public safety and how we balance the rights of the mentally ill with our ideas about justice and accountability. 
This is Unrestorable, a podcast from Anonymous Content and iHeartRadio. I spent some time working in bars, nightclubs, cleaning them up, things like that. And that'd be in between, you know, times when I was in college or during different parts of my career, you know, day jobs or whatever. Sometimes that was my career. Troy and I talked for months over Zoom, and I soon got a sense of his warmth, his sly sense of humor, his determination and tenacity. He's a classic tough-on-the-outside, teddy-bear-on-the-inside kind of guy. But the camera concealed one thing, the true depth of Troy's sorrow, the impossible sense of grief he wakes up with every morning and carries with him until he falls asleep every night. That I saw clearly the moment we met in person, the second I looked in his eyes. Troy and I finally did get to meet in person in December 2022. Nice to meet you in person. Today, Troy sells insurance, but at more than six feet tall, he certainly looks like the former high school football player and bouncer that he used to be. We start by talking about how he and Catherine first met. She was waitressing in going to junior college. And let me see. Um, I mean, we didn't probably talk the first three or four months that I was there. In pictures, Catherine is pretty and wholesome looking. She has shoulder length, medium brown hair, a sun-kissed complexion, and a shy smile. She looks like someone it would be easy to have a crush on. When she and Troy met, she was 22. He was 36. We wound up talking more, and then we wound up basically connecting. She got pregnant, and at that point, it's like, well, we should probably, you know, see if this will work or whatever. What was she like back then? She was a pretty fun person. She... She appeared to kind of have, you know, some animosity with with her family at times, things like that. But it's like, you know, it's kind of normal stuff when you're talking to someone you'll hear, you know. Uh, I mean, just overall fairly normal. This pregnancy was not Sarah or Jacob. This child was their first kid. Sarah was their second and Jacob was their third. This child, the eldest, is still alive. And we won't be naming him. Everyone agrees his privacy is more important. Did you feel like, because you got pregnant so soon after you started dating, obviously, were you like, oh, this is a person I have a genuine connection with? Or were you like, well, we've got to make the best of this situation? I felt like that I I liked her, I enjoyed being around her. So there was, you know, maybe some kind of connection. But a lot of it was, we should probably see if this should work. I mean, she's pregnant with my child. The first baby was hard, in the way that all babies are hard. But there was so much excitement and a lot of support. Catherine was the first of her four siblings to have a kid. So everyone wanted to play with the new baby, to take pictures of him, to make him laugh. Over the next few years, the family continued to grow. Fewer than six years into the relationship, Catherine and Troy had three children under the age of five. The family was living in a small apartment. Money was tight. It was a lot. And at times, Troy did feel that Catherine was a little wobbly. There were some things here or there where I was kind of like, okay, that's, you know, a little off or something, but nothing major. We had some fun together. We, we you know, we went to the beach or whatever, did things like that. Took the kids to see the dolphins down off, um, was it, Yorktown or whatever. You know, stuff like that. So, I mean, like, we had, like, some decent times. We did some cool things. But it was just with each child things seemed to progress differently. 
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Troy says that things progress differently, what he means is that Catherine was different. She was acting weird. But Troy told me he put it out of his mind. He figured that it was a lot to be pregnant three times in five years. I'm obviously not a doctor. I can't say what happened or what didn't. I know that she 
had told me that she was on medication for ADHD and things like that when we met. And when she got pregnant initially, I know she'd quit smoking and drinking, you know, right away. So she, it could be that she was on medication at that point and quit taking that too right away without saying anything. I don't know. But there was definitely kind of a change there. I think very black and white. You know, I thought it was like hormones from the pregnancy. So I went and I looked that up. I like Googled stuff with that. And I'm like, oh, it says it can last to a year after pregnancy. So we get towards the end of that year part and then she's pregnant with Sarah. So I just thought it was a continuation. Uh, same time frame kind of between Sarah and Jacob. But as time went on, Catherine became more and more erratic, doing things that Troy couldn't explain away. Sometimes she would just disappear when she was supposed to be taking care of the kids, leaving them alone. Other times, she seemed confused. So I'm on my way home from work, and I get a call from her that she's in D.C. and running out of gas, and she needs me to come into D.C. to get gas in my car. So I go in, and she appears to be coming from an area that's not, you know, a great neighborhood necessarily. And I'm going, what are you even doing out here? This is ridiculous. And you don't even have a license. So she said that she was trying to do something Christmas shopping-wise or something like that. And I'm going, let's get gas. You're going to follow me home. I pull out. We hit a red light. I make a left. She goes right. It goes off the other way. She's supposed to be following me home because she doesn't even know her way out of there. So I call her. I go, what are you doing? She goes, oh, well, you know, I'm going a different way. It happened again just a couple nights later. She's calling me saying that she has no gas or she needs gas, and she's asking me. And I said, okay, well, I'll come meet you. She's like, no, can you just drop 20 in cash off with the cashier, and I'll get it from him. I'm going, what? So she's trying to get me to drop cash off at different gas stations with the person working the register. Catherine also became increasingly paranoid. She kept insisting she was being followed. At one point, she asked Troy to buy a staple gun and shoot her with it. Troy couldn't ignore things anymore. I'm like, hold on, there's been a progression here. Like, this isn't the same as it was when she was pregnant with my first child. This has gotten worse. Our relationship was non-existent, pretty much. You get towards the end of 2012, we're sleeping in different places. It might have taken a few years for Troy to figure out that Catherine had serious mental health issues. But Catherine's mother, Lindsay Hoggle, says her daughter's problems started a long time ago. She struggled in middle school and high school just with a variety of different anxieties and mental health issues. Signs of real, serious issues started to show up when Catherine was a young teenager. I had known that she was struggling, and um, Time Magazine had a front page article on um, bipolar and teens. And so once I went through that, I just went, I've got to do something. I mean, these symptoms are this, you know, the same. And so that's when I decided that, you know, I was going to take her to a psychiatrist. Lindsay says that Catherine's issues affected the whole family, that Catherine would often not leave her room, that her oldest daughter was in constant conflict with her siblings and completely disengaged from school. It seemed like Catherine was falling apart. It finally became a situation where, you know, she broke the rules. Her father and I were divorced at that time, and I just said, well, 
you know, you've broken the rules. You need to find somewhere else to live, you know, and so she went to live with her dad. Can you tell me uh, the story of how you learned that she was pregnant with your first <laughs> Have you already heard that? I haven't heard it. <laughs> okay. So Catherine had been dating Troy and, you know, and she would come over for dinner or something. After I'm like, you know, she really looks like she's pregnant. But Lindsay and her daughter's relationship was already strained. So Lindsay just let it go. She didn't ask. She was hoping she was wrong, that her troubled daughter wasn't pregnant. And so I get this phone call, and so she goes, hi, Mom. I'm like, hi. She goes, well, I have some news. I'm like, okay. She goes, you're a grandmother. Catherine wasn't calling to say, oh, hey, congratulations. You're going to be a grandmother in several months. Catherine was saying, surprise, I have a baby. At first, Lindsay wasn't even sure that she was serious. But it wasn't a joke. She had to break the news to Catherine's dad, Randy. I could tell he was driving, so I said, pull over on the side of the road and call me back. And so he did, and so I told him. I said, I, you know, knew that this would be a little bit of a shock because I didn't want you to be driving a car while I was telling you. So the whole family is reeling. Lindsay was in shock. What are you supposed to do with a reveal like this? But this was her first grandchild, a baby boy. And so I got in the car, you know, with my middle daughter and gave her money to go buy a baby blanket at a nearby store, you know, where do you get these ideas? And then we drove to Harrisonburg. Luckily for Catherine, she was close to a hospital. And so when I went in, one of the nurses took me aside and said, you know, you're really lucky to have both of them, the baby and Catherine, because she had an emergency C-section. She said, it's not uncommon for us to lose one or the other or both during this type of an event. And so, you know, I was even more stunned and, you know, thrilled. But for whatever reason, that was that was how she chose to tell me. Catherine was 22. She and Troy hadn't been dating for long. And neither of them really had a career. Lindsay knew it would be a rough start. They had just gotten to Harrisonburg. They didn't have a place to live. They were in temporary housing. And so I, you know, helped find them somewhere to live and, you know, take care of. I, I can't remember how many days they kept her. And he, he was less than five pounds when they left the hospital, which you know, I was very worried about. I mean, I have eight-pound babies. So <laughs> five pound was just, you know, it's it small. And so um, they had a lot to get done before they were ready to have a baby and take care of a baby. That was the beginning of Catherine being a mom. It was chaotic, surprising, disorganized. But people have told me that Catherine was a good mom, that she loved her kids. It's not unexpected. In a way, it just makes what would happen later so much more of a shock. From the very beginning. Yeah, she loved it. I think it helped because my youngest daughter is, uh, I guess, about seven years difference between. And so Catherine had kind of grown up, you know, taking care of my youngest daughter. Lindsay says Catherine took to motherhood right away. Like it was the only thing she ever wanted to do. I remember this. I had said, you know, let me take him for a night or two on the weekend and give you guys a break. And so on my, 
on the way out. She has index cards that she's stuffing in the back pockets on my jeans as I'm walking out. And of course I'm going, okay, I've I've raised children before. I've done this before. I should know everything. And and she's laughing. She's like, but no, these are his like little, you know, these are the things that you got to take care of him. I'm like, okay. So I'm sure I'm going to get drilled when I get home. You're going to call and ask me if I've read them, aren't you? And she goes, yes. So yeah, she was, she loved it. You know, she loved it. How is she doing over those years? How is she managing those stresses? How is she managing being a mother? Um, Just, you know, what is sort of the narrative as they build their family? How does she weather those years? Um, Oh, gosh. Sometimes better than others. Part of it very much was just not the right fit of everything that they were doing. I mean, Troy worked nights, which left her with the children a lot. And so, you know, her father and I tried to help a lot in in picking up, you know, the slack and everything. But as Catherine became more erratic, it became clear that something had to be done. It all came to a head just before Christmas in 2013. I grabbed Randy, her father, and Lindsay, her mom, and I had them meet me at Lindsay's house, and we had a talk in her driveway. I said, you know, we were coming up on Christmas. I said, look, I said, let's get through Christmas with the kids if we can. But at that point, I need you guys to be with me on this. We need to sit down and talk to her and say, hey, look, either you're going to get help or we're going to get you help. The family desperately needed to get on the same page for Catherine, for the kids, for everyone. But the cracks were showing. I remember her father, Randy is easily her biggest enabler. He was like, well, I don't know about this. And I remember Lindsay going off on him and cussing him out in the driveway, poking him in his chest, talking about how, you know, he's always enabled and this and this, and this is something that, that he needs to get on board with. Despite her father's unease, the family decided that Catherine shouldn't ever be left alone with the kids. She wasn't reliable, and she didn't seem to be making rational decisions. Lindsay's house, a big suburban home on a nice piece of property, not far from Troy and Catherine's apartment, became central dispatch. Catherine and the kids would come there while Troy was at work. Family members rotated in and out, taking care of the three young kids and making sure another adult was always with Catherine. I'm going, okay, she's their mom. I want her to be in their life. We just have to figure out a safe, healthy way to do it at this point where, and it wasn't a safe, healthy way in terms of I thought she would be killing my kids or physically hurting them. It was just the decision-making process wasn't there. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Despite all the attempts to help Catherine at home, eventually the family realized she needed more help. Catherine was committed, involuntarily. She was placed in handcuffs and taken away, spending Christmas 2013 in the psych ward of a suburban Baltimore hospital after being diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. Catherine and Troy's oldest son was four. Sarah was two. And Jacob was just one, a baby. A young family that should have been brimming with hope. But this one was spiraling. After a short period, Catherine was able to check herself out of the hospital. But from then on, over the next year, she was in and out of treatment. Did she reject the diagnoses or was she at peace or as much as one can be? with the fact that she has mental illness, it needs to be managed. I think the main thing that her feelings throughout that time period were very much, my children could be taken from me if I admit to having serious mental illness. 
Were you afraid that Catherine would hurt herself? No. Were you ever afraid she would hurt the kids? No. The family implemented new rules. Catherine couldn't be left alone with the kids, she couldn't drive, and she had to receive psychiatric treatment. Lindsay says that all of this just made Catherine increasingly fixated on the idea that her kids were going to be taken away from her. So I had an office in my home, and she would come and say, you know, they're trying to take the children from me. And so I just assumed that it was that part of paranoia that had arisen. Things started happening that I wasn't sure was true or not. Troy says that during this time, as Catherine moved in and out of the hospital, staff would release her, assuring him that while his wife was definitely troubled, she was not dangerous. But Troy was starting to worry that the doctors were wrong. In that time frame, she says things and does things that show me she's definitely dangerous. The family felt like Catherine wasn't getting better, that she wasn't getting the help she needed. One time after Catherine was released from a psychiatric facility, she approached a random stranger on the street and ended up spending the night at her house. It gets to the point where you realize that someone's not making good judgment and that they're emotional and your expectations of how they should act are not the way they're acting. I mean, just upset over things, irrational thinking. The family was coming apart and they couldn't keep limping along. Troy wanted Catherine committed for longer stretches of time. So I took her up there one day and I said, you guys need to keep her. I just walked in, I said, you need to keep her. Here's why. And then I walked out and they kept her. But it wouldn't last. Catherine would once again go through the revolving doors of the hospital and come back home. And while everyone around her kept trying to pull it all together, tragedy felt imminent. Tragedy struck on Sunday, September 7th, 2014. That night, as Troy got ready to go to work, he said goodbye to his kids, as he did every night. So I hugged and kissed the kids, told them I loved them, said, Dad, I go to work, but I'll be back later this evening, you know, and I left. Troy never saw his two youngest kids again. Troy and his current wife, Stephanie, the one who sent me that letter and started this entire thing for me, have spent the last nine years tirelessly looking for the children, advocating for them, and hoping that Catherine would one day be brought to justice. After the kids went missing, Catherine took off. But after five days on the run, she was caught and arrested. She never told anyone where Sarah and Jacob were, and she still hasn't. At first, Catherine was charged with parental abduction and obstruction. Months after her arrest, Catherine was found not competent to stand trial. Only years later, after the children were presumed dead, would she be charged with their murders. And then, remember, there is this statute in the state of Maryland that says that defendants charged with felonies or violent crimes who have been found not competent have to be tried within five years, or the charges against them have to be dismissed. And that is Troy and Stephanie's biggest fear and their motivation. It's what got them to reach out to me in the first place. Because when I got her letter, there were less than nine months left on that ticking clock. If Catherine couldn't be restored to competency, the charges against her would be dismissed. And the chances of ever finding out what happened to Sarah and Jacob that September night in 2014 would grow dimmer and dimmer. 
In addition to a really complicated personal story about a family tragedy, there are so many complex issues here to tease out regarding the law and mental health and how these systems intersect. About our perceptions of mental illness. About our expectations for mothers. About how we balance public safety versus the rights of the accused. And what justice and accountability mean for the most heinous of crimes. And you're going to hear from experts about these bigger questions as we dig into the details of this very complicated story. How's it going? Well, uh, just going pretty well. I had an all-day interview yesterday, right? I mean, I got up at, like, actually, I was up since 1 a.m. One of those experts who will help us throughout this podcast is my friend and colleague, Beth Karras. And here's the thing about Beth. She's a bit of a legend. Beth was a New York City prosecutor for years, and then she moved on to Court TV. She's now been an investigative journalist for decades, and she's always popping up on TV to talk about big cases. One time, I watched her get recognized by fans in the lobby of a courtyard Marriott. And I knew she was the perfect person to sort through all of the complex issues in this case. If the charges are dismissed, could Catherine be released? It's a thought that terrifies Troy and Stephanie, because they, the police and prosecutors, all believe that Catherine murdered Sarah and Jacob, and that there's a lot more she's been hiding over the last nine years. Coming up on Unrestorable. I'm thinking I'm going to the police station to basically have them, you know, do whatever they need to do to find out where my kids are so I can get my kids. And I'm thinking that I need to get there before I lose control over my emotions at this point. It's just too much at this point. I'm like, it's, it's crazy. We were on the phone one night, and he just kind of stopped me. And he told me that his two kids were missing. And honestly, I don't think that I believed him. There have been amendments to our mental health statutes throughout the years. And 2006, there were major amendments because they were concerned that people were just going to be locked away, people would forget about them, you know, no oversight. Somebody who's really kind of cynical looking at this whole eight-year saga would say that Catherine Hoggle has been a master manipulator this entire time, right until now. She's avoiding this final hearing, and she may prevail in getting her criminal charges dismissed and being civilly committed. Unrestorable is executive produced and hosted by me, Sarah Trelevin, and Beth Karras. Our story editor is Kathleen Goldhar. Mixing and sound design by Reza Daya. For anonymous content, Jessica Grimshaw is our executive producer, Jennifer Sears is our executive in charge of production, and Nick Yanez is our legal counsel. For iHeart, executive producer Christina Everett and supervising producer Abu Zafar. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.